Welcome to the Harvard on China podcast. My name is James Gethin Evans here at the Fairbanks Center for Chinese Studies. Today, I'm joined by Professor David Shamba, the Gaston Sigur Professor of Asian Studies and Political Science and International Affairs, and Director of the Elliott School of International Affairs China Policy Program at George Washington University. Professor Shamba is a field-defining scholar, a former editor of China Quarterly, former director of the Asia Program at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. A non-resident fellow at the Brookings Institute, and formerly serving in the U.S. Department of State and National Security Council, to name a few, Professor Shamba is widely regarded as one of the foremost experts on the leadership of the Chinese Communist Party. He's the author of more than thirty books, including his latest book, *China's Leaders from Mao to Now*, published with Polity Press. So, Professor Shamba, thank you for being with us here today on the Harvard on China podcast.、Uh, my pleasure, James. Good to see you. Uh, so your book,、uh, before we start, is dedicated to、uh, the late Professor Roderick McFarquhar, who is the former director of the Fairbanks Center and known to many in the the China Studies field.、Um, why did you decide to dedicate this book to him, and what kind of influence did he have on your scholarship? Well, I, Rod、um, has had a long-standing influence on on my scholarship and and myself. I would say. Uh, since we first met in, I think, 1978 or 9, when Rod was researching the first volume of his trilogy on the Cultural Revolution,、um, at that time he was a, a visiting scholar at the Woodrow Wilson Center、uh, here in Washington,、um, and that's when we first met and had a couple lunches, and I subsequently、uh, went to the University of Michigan. Uh, for my own PhD studies, and I remember he came out to Ann Arbor a couple of times at the invitation of Michael Oxenberg, who is my principal、um, uh, advisor and mentor there, together with Alan Whiting and Ken Lieberthal.、Um, so, sort of interacted with Rod as a graduate student,、um, <clears throat> but really, I must say,、um, my interactions with him、uh, were after he moved to Harvard. From from London,、um, I went in the opposite direction. <laughs> Interestingly enough, a little bit later than he came to Cambridge, I went to London and and、uh, began my almost decade long、um, stint at SOAS School of Oriental and African Studies, where I started off as a junior lecturer and then became a senior lecturer and then what they call a reader in Chinese politics in the University of London. But、uh, during that same period,、um, I、uh, was appointed as, at a very rather young age, I think I was a senior lecturer at the time, as the editor of the China Quarterly, which was then and is still and always has been published by SOAS. Now, Rod, of course, was the founder of the China Quarterly, 1960, and、um, all editors, at least. Of the China Quarterly have a kind of paternal approach、uh, to their journal, and certainly if you're the founding、uh, father of the journal, as Rod was, he had a paternal approach.、Um, I think I was at that time maybe the fourth editor: David Wilson,、um, John Giddings, Brian Hook, and then myself.、Um, so Rod was very kind and very. He reached out. To me, when I moved to London, first of all, he gave me advice on key personalities in British academia and in British government. 
uh, even suggested neighborhoods I should look for to uh, to live in and, and buy a flat. I recall he suggested Hampstead, but that was a little bit beyond my financial reach, so I wound up in West Hampstead. Um, but uh, he he helped kind of, you know, I was an American new to to uh, the UK and to British academe, which has, of course, its own peculiarities. And so he was he was very helpful, you know, privately, um, telling me about things to look out for. Um, but then when I was appointed as, as editor of the quarter, China Quarterly, um, he m made a particular effort, first of all, to have me to Cambridge there in, in uh, Massachusetts and introduce me to the community of China scholars at Harvard um, it was always traditional, by the way, for the editor of the China Quarterly to make an inaugural trip to North America <laughs> to meet the American Sinological community. Well, as an American, I didn't really need to meet the, you know, some people. I was familiar with a number of them, but not all. So I made my uh, editorial trip across the across the pond, as the British would say, um, starting though in Cambridge, and Rod convened. Oh, a, a lovely dinner in the faculty club and an afternoon-long seminar with different faculty member and graduate students. So anyway, I don't want to indulge in too many memories, but the point is he was a very mentoring during my five years as editor, including the 35th anniversary of the journal when we convened all the former uh, editors who were all alive at the time in London and, and had, a, had a, a symposium, public symposium, and published a special issue um, with reminiscences of the journal and reminiscences of China during each of our editorships. So, you know, that was a great moment. And we have a great photograph, actually, with a cake uh, that looks like the cover of the China Quarterly and Rod, all of our hands are on the knife cutting the cake, but Rod's, of course, is in the center. So, you know, he was, he was just a, he was never my teacher um, directly, but he certainly was indirectly. And he was very mentoring, as I say. I would also just mention the fact that, you know, he held extremely high standards of scholarship and empiricism. And, you know, I've always tried to um, hold the same sorts of standards. And, uh, you know, he just had an encyclopedic mind. Unbelievable. He would lecture, of course, with no notes in front of him. His Rice Paddy's course and his Cultural Revolution course at Harvard are famous legion for speaking, and not just charismatically, but without a single note in front of him. Well, he carried all that information around in his head. And um, I remember he took me to task once or twice for some statement I'd written or made. There was one case in 1956 uh, or 50, 55 or something when I said Laura Ching, who was the then Minister of Public Security, had admitted so many people had been killed in the counter-revolutionary campaign, and he corrected me because the digit was slightly wrong. It was, you know, six rather than five. <laughs> uh, so, but you know, it's that kind of meticulousness and and empiricism uh, that I think all scholars really should be held to um you know so that that was that was instructive to me um rod was also fascinated by kind of the internecine strife of chinese politics and leaders he really um you know he really was really interested in in the backstabbing the maneuvering uh the undercutting uh the various tactics that they would use vis-a-vis -vis each other and the sheer um, capriciousness, really, and brutality of, of the system. You know, I have to say, I, I 
wasn't as fascinated by that dimension as he was. I'm more, we can get into this in the conversation. I've been interested in leaders my entire academic career, but I've also been very much more interested in institutions and the, and the policy process and, and bureaucracies. Um, so um, anyway, I, you know, I really look up to Rod and, and I'm so sad that he passed away and I was at the memorial service there in Cambridge. It was a very, very moving event. And obviously the turnout um, just was testimony to how much everybody revered him and will continue to revere him. So I thought it was only appropriate writing a book about Chinese leaders, <laughs> you know, that I dedicated uh, to his memory. Yeah, and I love that uh, you mentioned Rod as sort of a mentor. So he wasn't formally your teacher, but in a mentor position. And I think many people who met Rod will share a similar sentiment about he sort of took everyone under his wing and was incredibly encouraging. So we certainly miss him at the Fairbank Center. Um, so you mentioned the, the book, uh, which is about the five most prominent leaders of the People's Republic of China since its founding in 1949. Um, why did you decide to write this book? And I should note, during lockdown uh, of the past few years, as COVID-19 has, has ravaged North America, you know, for some of us, we sat in sweatpants the whole of lockdown, and here you are writing and publishing a book. What was that experience like? Well, I, I have to say that this, this topic and this book has sort of been brewing in my brain for literally my entire career, going back to the late 1970s when I first started studying Chinese politics. I have always had an interest in leadership. I'm one of these Zhongyang-level scholars. Um, I very much care what goes on inside the ring roads in Beijing, and I care much less, or I'm less interested, I should say, in what goes on out in the country in China. Um, so I've, I've, that was uh, true in the late 1970s when I was an undergraduate at George Washington University study, studying under Harold Hinton, who was another one of these elite-centric uh, China scholars, one of Rod's contemporaries, in fact, somebody that Rod held in high esteem. Um, and, you know, Washington, certainly during that time, the height of the Cold War, was uh, very obsessed with leadership politics in all communist systems. Um, including the Chinese system. So my introduction to the uh, study of Chinese politics started um, in the Zhongnan High, right? That was as an undergraduate, and that continued um, during my graduate school as well. Although, um, as you know, we can get into this too. As I say, when I got to the University of Michigan, I really began to look much more consciously and seriously at institutions um, rather than just individuals. Uh, my uh, professor and mentor there, Michael Oxenberg, took me out to lunch the very first day on campus. He said, David, if you're going to understand China, you have to understand bureaucracy. And he you know, set me off in a series of directed reading courses and a couple of organizational theory classes and other things to understand Chinese bureaucracy. So we can come back to that subject. But you ask about what motivated this book. And, you know, I've literally been studying it and teaching it for over four decades. So you can't just sit down during a pandemic and and manufacture a 430-page book. Um, uh, so I had just finished my previous book, um, Where Great Powers Meet, America and China and Southeast Asia, came out in, in uh, just January of this year, six or seven months ago 
that took about three years to reach fruition. Oxford University Press is far slower in production than Polity Press. Um, Polity got this book out uh, in six months from delivery of manuscript to publication. Um, and I can commend Polity to all your listeners. Um, it's a great press. This is the second book I've done with them. Um, they're a smallish um, niche press based in Cambridge, England, not Cambridge, Massachusetts, but they're fabulous and they have a great team to work with. So uh, the editor there, you know, it published my previous book, China's Future, had been after me to write another one. And so when the pandemic broke and I had finished my Southeast Asia book, I thought, right, this is the time to sit down and write this China leaders book. And as I say, you can't write a book about 70 years of leaders, you know, off the top of your head. So I, I like to think of it that I had 40 years of research <laughs> and teaching. And, you know, I uh, dug out a lot of my teaching notes and a lot of the materials I had. And I just, um, when the pandemic erupted, I uh, thought, okay, you know, what can I write uh, during this time? And um, sat down and retreated to my family cottage in northern Michigan for four months of it and, and wrote wrote this book. It took nine months of writing um, from start to finish. So, but, you know, it wasn't, as I say, because I'd done the research, I'd been teaching it, I had the materials. Um, it was, I had to go back and check. I'd forgotten a number of things. And I wish that Rod had been alive to ask him, what about, you know, this party plenum or that <laughs> factional struggle or this purge or, you know, that event. You know, I had to kind of, um, go back and, and unearth data um, that I'd forgotten about or didn't even know about. But most of it I, I was in my brain. It was just a matter of sitting down and, and collating it and writing it. Yeah, I think one of the things I enjoyed most about the book was taking incredibly complex topics and making them very accessible. So, you know, for somebody who doesn't know much about the Chinese political system, this book is a really great introduction to that topic. For someone who doesn't know much about Chinese leaders, it really helps lay out what's at stake for each of them. Um, you talk about these sort of five prominent leaders, um, and I say prominent because not all of them held the same position formally within the Chinese Communist Party. Um, and one of the ways that you explain it in a very accessible way is to give each of them a label. So you label Mao as a popularist tyrant, Deng as a pragmatic Leninist, Jiang Zemin as a bureaucratic politician, Hu as a technocratic apparatchik, and Xi Jinping as a modern emperor. Um, when you were coming up with these categorizations, what was the process behind their labels? Right. Well, um, first of all, I wanted to write a book, as you say, that was um, accessible to um, the public, you know, and to students. I like to think that this might be a useful volume in the classroom. Um, because it's not just about the individual leaders, um, but about their times as well. So this is a history. It's a, it's a political history, to be sure. It's also an economic history. To a certain extent, I think you could say it's even a social, military, and foreign relations history. So I write about all those different domains in the context of each leader. And I wanted to make it readable and accessible. I mean, one has to say that Rod's writings, you know, were just, uh, dense. I mean, the amount of detail um, was just overwhelming, and that's what distinguished it. Um, the footnotes were, you know, longer than the text, or as long as the text in many of his books. Um, 
And they were really written, you know, for other scholars, I have to say. And they're the gold standard. We all really read the trilogy and the Cultural Revolution and the book he did with Michael Schoenhaus, you know, and the Cultural Revolution and, and his others, all the way back to his Hundred Flowers uh, volume. You know, and that's just a scholarly gold standard. But I didn't want to get into that level of primary source research and footnoting. I wanted to write, I mean, I had, you have to, I wanted to write a more accessible volume, um, but with the empirical data. So the footnotes are a mixture of secondary and primary uh, materials. Um, so you, so I just had to say that, but you ask about the labels I give these five leaders, um, Mao, Deng, Jiang, Hu, and Xi. So you've already given, given the labels uh, to listeners. Um, you know, Mao, I uh, call a populist tyrant because of the, what we associate today, especially after Donald Trump, with the term populism. <laughs> and in Eastern Europe and elsewhere in the globe, we've just been through a period, hopefully past tense, um, of populist authoritarianism. But, but, you know, populism, or another term that scholars use for it, voluntarism, um, it is an appeal to the mass public, the downtrodden and the dispossessed and the disaffected elements of a society in particular. Um, that's who Mao appealed to in China, the rural peasantry, of course, uh, most notably, but other elements of society and the urban proletariat as well. Um, Mao was a, a deeply anti-elitist politician who repeatedly appealed straight to the masses and would try and mobilize him, them, I should say, through his uh, campaigns, the Yundong, you know, one Yundong after another characterized the Maoist era. He would mobilize the, the masses against the state, right? He didn't use the state against the masses so much, uh, certainly not after 1956, but he used the masses against the state repeatedly. Um, he had an innate faith in them, in their kind of voluntarist agency, you might say. Um, and he thought that the that inst he distrusted institutions, he distrusted elites, and this led to his views about revisionism. You know, he wanted to transform Chinese society normatively, culturally, behaviorally, and the institutions would get corrupted in that process, he believed. <laughs> so he leapfrogged the institutions, the bureaucracies, and, and appealed repeatedly straight to the straight to the masses. So that's why I call him a, a populist. Um, he was also very much a revolutionary in, I would argue, the Trotskyite variety. He sought perpetual revolution and the export of it. Uh, you, James, are in fact writing your own PhD dissertation about the export of Maoist you know, revolutions abroad during the 60s and the 70s. Um, so you know, that was also populist. To be a revolutionary, you have to be a populist. And then I would note, you know, why do I call him a tyrant? So I call him a populist tyrant. Well, he's a tyrant of, you know, global historical proportions. He's up there in the league of Hitler and Stalin, if not more so. Many more Chinese died at, under his rule than did under Hitler's rule or Stalin's rule or Pol Pot in Cambodia tens of millions, somewhere between 40 and 50 million Chinese died as a result of his policies, uh, directly or indirectly. Um, 
So, and tens of, well, I don't know about tens of millions, but countless millions, others were persecuted um, by him um, and took their own lives and were stigmatized. I mean, he just was a, he was a despot and a tyrant extraordinaire. Uh, so these are two, these two elements are in fact somewhat contradictory, right? You, you appeal to the people, but you're despotic really towards the elites, interestingly enough. I mean, the Great Leap Forward, which took most of those 50 million lives, if you believe uh, Frank Decoter's research, 40 million perished in that campaign. So, you know, um, these were kind of contradictory elements of his rule. Um, but I think his lasting legacy has to be said is, is mixed, but overwhelmingly negative, certainly after 1956. Um, so that's, you know, that's why I call him a populist tyrant. Moving more quickly, maybe through the, through the others, Deng Xiaoping, I call a pragmatic Leninist. I think those are in a self-evident terms. We all associate pragmatism with Deng Xiaoping and his famous statement, it doesn't matter if a cat is black or white, as long as it catches mice, it's a good cat, um, right? He wanted to get things done and uh, he didn't want ideology or other things really standing in his way. So we all know about the 80s and the reforms. You know, he was a highly pragmatic uh, leader, um, but he was also very much a Leninist. Um, and he believed in uh, ruling through institutions, quite to the, unlike Mao, who <laughs> just wanted to either circumvent or attack and destroy institutions, which is what the Cultural Revolution was all about. Um, so Deng had to Dung had come up, you know, in, in his career working through the Leninist apparat as the general secretary of the party in the mid-1950s, and then certainly in the period 62 to 65, um, when Mao, quote, retired to the second line, unquote, and Dung and Liu Xiaoqi and Shen Yun had to kind of put Humpty Dumpty back together again after the catastrophe of the, of the Great Leap. Uh, so anyway, Dung, Dung had to do that again when he... Um, took over after Mao's death. Um, Mao died in 76, 1976. He took over in 78, and he did all kinds of things, but he had to rebuild quite literally the institutional apparatus of the party in the state and the military for that matter. So that's why I call him a Leninist. He was a real organization man um, in the truest Leninist sense. And he rebuilt it and then he ruled through it. But he didn't want the organizations to become um, you know, captured by factions or impede the reforms that he uh, was, was implementing. You know, he understood that, that bureaucracies and institutions have a kind of natural way in any system to block initiatives. So that was a trick for him um, to try and finesse. So that's why I call him a pragmatic Leninist. Zhang Zemin, I call a bureaucratic politician. Well, this is interesting because, you know, he was catapulted to the top of the uh, system in 1989, June, right after the massacre of June 4th. He had been the party secretary in Shanghai just prior to that and before that the mayor in uh, Shanghai. Um, but his whole career, uh, but when he was, he was brought to the top uh, by Deng, with the acquiescence of, of Chen Yun and Song Ping and Wang Jun and other senior elderly gerontocrats who were uh, in control at the time, they could all agree on Jiang Zemin might be a good 
figure, whether they thought of him as a long, long-lasting leader or a transitional leader, you know, who knows. But turns out he ruled for 13 years. I think many foreigners analysts, uh, when he was promoted, the first reaction was, who? Who is this guy? You know? Who comes next? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then the next reaction was, well, he's not going to last long. This is kind of Huago Feng 2.0. And uh, he'll last a couple of years and they'll shove him aside and somebody else will emerge. Well, it turns out Jiang Zemin lasted 13 years in power and he wasn't ready to go when they finally did forcibly retire him, I would argue, um, beyond the retirement age. So question is, how did he last for 13 years in power? That's no mean trick in that system. Deng Xiaoping didn't rule for 13 years. <laughs> So I argue the reason I call him a bureaucratic politician is because he drew on his own background as a bureaucrat, uh, and he and he turned that to his political advantage. So what do I mean by that? So Chinese politics, you know, it may be a one-party dictatorship, um, but it still has different constituencies throughout the country: geographic, factional, institutional, patronage networks, bureaucratic, and others. I argue in the book that. John um, adopted a, a bureaucratic approach, namely uh, that he'd, he'd worked his entire career in the industrial bureaucracies. Um, this is not a man, in fact, who worked his way up through the party system. Yes, he was a party member, but until um, the late 80s, he didn't hold a party position. I think it was when he was assigned party secretary of the Ministry of Electronics was his first actual party position. Prior to that, he was entirely on the state side. So this is the only Chinese leader of the five I look at whose career came up through the government, not really through the party in terms of work. Again, he was a party member, and then he, after the late 80s, held one or two party positions. But the point is, he understood uh, bureaucracy. He understood this table of organization of the state council. He understood um, how to mobilize uh, bureaucratic um, support right, within bureaucracies and across them. And the best way in any bureaucracy to mobilize support is to, uh, you know, basically support what they ask for and then give them the resources to accomplish it, right? So he, it's very interesting in, in the chapter I wrote about Jiang Zemin, in the first uh, 18 months, 24 months, two years really, of, of his rule, he very systematically went through every bureaucracy in the state council and the military and the party. Every units, that is to say, or shitong, right? Every every buman, every department within the, within the systems. And um, listened to them, gave speeches to them. And then I argue, adopted their, um, their aspirations, their missions, their programs and did what any smart politician in any system will do, shower them with money, give them resources to accomplish their mission. You know, so it's kind of a Tip O'Neill approach, you might say, or I don't know. It's, um, um, you know, sort of, it's not just unique to China, quite to the contrary, pork barrel politics with Chinese characteristics, you might call it. Um, Jiang Zemin that excelled at that. And that, I argue, is what really cemented his position. He was very weak when he came to the top. He had no ties to other leaders. He had no ties to the military. Uh, he had, you know, no real geographic power base except the Shanghai region. 
Um, but all of this this strategy of his was very astute strategically and tactically, and I argue is what propelled him for 13 years in power. Now, uh, Hu Jintao, <clears throat> um, I, as you mentioned, I describe him as a technocratic apparatchik. Okay, well, he's a technocrat due to his training in engineering at Tsinghua University. Indeed, Jiang Zemin was a technocrat as well, also engineering at Shanghai Jiao Tong University. So this whole intermediate period after, after Deng is characterized by technocratic, technocratic rule. A lot of other scholars uh, have written about that. Um, so who, you know, was trained in, in, um, in that, in the hydroelectric field and was in fact, after graduation, after one year of teaching at Tsinghua, the first year of the Cultural Revolution, by the way, which is one of the gaps in the book, I'm sure there are many gaps in the book, um, that uh, it's a little unclear what happened to him during the Cultural Revolution. I haven't been able to really ascertain what happened to Hu Jintao in 66, 67. That's one of the times I wish Rod was around <laughs> to ask. Uh, I'm sure he would have had the answer. Um, but anyway, he gets sent off after that year to faraway Gansu province, where he works for a few years in the hydroelectric industry out there. Um, before meeting the then party secretary, Gansu, uh, uh, um, Ping, And Ping becomes his uh, lifelong or career-long and major patron. It's Song Ping who first brings him to the attention of Deng Xiaoping, for example. And Deng Xiaoping is the one who anoints Hu Jintao as Jiang Zemin's successor uh, when Deng Xiaoping is still alive. And Jiang Zemin is just in the first few years of his rule. So Jiang Zemin rules his entire 13 years, constrained by the fact that he knows who his successor is going to be, um, Hu Jintao. And... You know, I argue in the book that, John, that Hu Jintao did not use those 13 years very effectively at all in building his own power base. He could have, um, but when he got to the top, uh, he didn't really have a power base either outside the, the party system, which is why I call him an operatic, right? So technocratic in training, operatic in career path. He spent his entire career in the party Shitong, uh, it's called party system, different in propaganda, organization work, um, at the party school, uh, you know, he was a student there. And um, so he, you know, he understood the party system and the, he's just an organization's man or a quintessential, you know, sort of cadre, a cadre's cadre, you might say, didn't really stand out. But that may have been um, one of his assets, in fact. But he certainly had <laughs> lacked in personality, I think it's fair to say. He is widely dismissed as, you know, just being a really bland figure. The cliche at the time was, who's who? Um, you know, where is this guy's personality? Was, the adjectives that are frequently used to describe Hu Jintao are wooden, stiff, you know, never smiles. And that's all true. Um, although I have a photograph of, of him, uh, with of me meeting him, and he's actually smiling. Um, I have it here on my shelf. Uh, but no, this was not a charismatic leader, Hu Jintao. He was just a operatic's operatic. Well, um, 
and he's dismissed for having been ineffective. Frank, when he stepped down after 10 years, he and Wen Jiabao, who was the premier during that period, uh, were both criticized for having, you know, presided over so-called 10 lost years. That's a phrase that Chinese used, not just foreigners. Well, I think, you know, looking, I think that's unfair, frankly, that description, 10 lost years. Um, they, the two of them launched a number of reform policies and social policy, party reform, foreign policy um, during their first term, the first five years, but they failed to implement it. The second five years were, were a failure. Um, these initiatives just fizzled out. So Hu Jintao, one thing he did not understand was bureaucracy. He could have taken you know, a t- tutorial from Jiang Zemin about how to get policies implemented and to use bureaucracies and to co-opt bureaucracies. Um, So it's kind of an oddity. This is a guy who worked his entire career in a bureaucracy, but it was the party bureaucracy. So when it came to the policies he and Wen Jiabao were trying to institute, um, that required government bureaucracies uh, to do so. And he didn't really understand that. So, you know, as well intended as these reforms were, and there was a distinct attempt to shift emphasis away from the kind of coastal bias and growth at all costs uh, economic policies of Jiang Zemin to a more, um, you know, socially conscious uh, kind of agenda of social equality, social justice, proving basic living standards, alleviating poverty, environmental protection, you know, anti-corruption, a whole number of things that were lumped under the title, the scientific mode of development. <laughs> that was one of John, that was Hu Jintao's lasting contribution, the scientific mode of development. Um, anyway, they, they fizzled out. They were well-intended. That was, that was a corrective, you might say, to the Jiang Zemin period. But uh, they didn't really uh, get implemented, and as a result, social inequality continued to widen during the Hu period, and corruption became even more endemic and systemic. So by the time, that's why I guess people were really critical of him um, when uh, he left office. But I think time may, as time passes, his period uh, may, you know, look look better uh, in in retrospect. You know. His tenure was noteworthy for stability, predictability, and incremental improvements in, in many areas, including foreign policy. And across the Taiwan Strait, I would note, uh, there were no relations across the Taiwan Strait before Hu Jintao came to power, and he and Ma Ying-jeou put them in place. Um, and he, in foreign policy, uh, reoriented Chinese foreign policy from a kind of northern foreign policy to a global south foreign policy, a much more omnidirectional foreign policy away from the United States and even away from Russia. Jiang Zemin was fixated on relations with Moscow and Washington. Well, Hu Jintao re-embraced, rediscovered uh, the global South and so and multilateralism. So there was there were some, some significant changes, I think, in Hu Jintao's foreign policy. Anyway, with the passage of time, I don't know if historians will look better upon Hu Jintao's period than when he left office. Lastly, <laughs> sorry, James, you asked a complicated question. Why do I describe these leaders as I do? Well, I describe our friend Xi Jinping as a modern emperor. You know, he rules China during modern times, but in ways reminiscent of China's historical emperors. All powerful, regal, fairly aloof, respected, indeed feared, sycophantically 
revered personality cult extreme um, in singular control of all the organs of state and military power, a believer in China's greatness, but promoter of its imperial past, intolerable of insubordination and dissent, uh, a proponent of ethical behavior, which all emperors were supposed to be, Wang Dao, right? Um, and the setter of ideological doctrine um, and interpreter of the past. So, you know, these are traditional roles that imperial emperors had to perform. And he is very much in that mold, I see, um, but in, a, in the 21st century. He's also trying to turn China's economy and technology into world-class standards um, and China's global power. So that's the, the way he rules is the re reason I call him an emperor, the manner in which he rules. It just happens to be in modern times. Um, so, you know, I, we can go into each of these five, including, including Xi Jinping further if you're interested, but those are the reasons I describe each of them as I do. Yeah, I think, what, well, thank you for a fabulous answer to a complicated question. Um, I think one of the, the key points that really comes out in the book is how much each of these individuals' backgrounds really does influence a lot of their ideas, their policy positions. Um, you talk about how different leaders sort of go through this process at slightly different times in their lives. For some, it's their 20s, some it's their 30s and 40s. Um, what is the, the sort of the main themes that you're seeing in terms of how background influences leadership? You know, we have not that much to go on with some of the, the leaders in terms of their background, but it does seem to have a very strong influence on uh, Chinese leaders in a way that it then influences policy uh, quite directly. Yeah, well, studies of leaders in the world um, generally all try to explore and ascertain the connection between their their youth, in particular, their so-called childhood and you know pre-adult socialization, and um, and the way they rule. So, you know, biographers. This is you know this is intrinsic to biographical research and political science research on, on leadership is you try and figure out what happened to somebody before they reached the top and how does that influence how they behave once they got to the top. So in the case of Chinese leaders, uh, we have a problem, namely uh, information <laughs> or lack, lack of it and data. Um, you know, the Chinese system is secretive on many levels, but when it comes to personal background, family issues, uh, schooling, you know, what happened to somebody uh, when, there's just not much to go on. Um, and then, of course, they try and build a kind of false hagiographic narrative around their leaders. Um, so there's a data problem. Um, none the, and then secondly, you know, th there is this attempt when you study leaders to try and make those linkages, as I say, between uh, the period before they became a leader and then subsequently. Now, if these five I look at, um, frankly, I didn't find a lot of linkages between the way they ruled after getting to the top and what happened to them before they got to the top. Uh, in, in a couple cases, yes, certainly Mao. You have to start with Mao. And I discuss in the first chapter, the whole first chapter is, is kind of a discourse on 
leadership studies and the way to think about leadership in the Chinese context um, normatively. Um, and I talk in that chapter a little bit about the, the backgrounds of these individuals. So Mao, yes, we all know he uh, had a terrible <laughs> relationship with his father. Uh, he, you know, and it's been argued for a long time, beginning with the biographies by Lucian Pai, another former um, fixture in Cambridge and at the Fairbanks Center and at MIT, terribly, terribly insightful sinologist. Um, you know, that Mao's relationship with his father drove his revolutionary uh, passions. Right? Richard Solomon wrote a huge book based on all this. So, um, yes, no, I think that's true. Mao's anti-authoritarianism, his anti-elitism, um, born very much out of his experiences at home with his father, but also once he went off to um, to high school um, and and then subsequently. The other element of Mao is he he aspired, he hated intellectuals, but he aspired to being one himself, right? He just attacked them relentlessly throughout his career once he became the leader, but he fancied uh, being an intellectual and reading and himself. So you saw, you can see that early on in his teenage years, and you see it all the way through his period in the Zhongnan High, where he's reading the Shiji and all kinds of ancient Chinese texts. Um, but so, yeah, there are some linkages in Mao's case. Deng Xiaoping, no, I didn't find any connection between Deng's pre-leadership um, experiences, his, you know, growing up and in France and in Moscow and even in the 50s, you know, and what kind of leader he became uh, after 1978. I suppose the only, um, you know, ind indicator of that is how he ruled in the 62 to 65 period and the post-Great Leap recovery, right? There, that's the prototype for the reforms of the of the 80s, right? Um, what the Chen Yun and he and Liu Xiaoqi and others put together in 62 through 65 was a complete template, blueprint for what then they uh, revisited and re-implemented in the post-78 period. It's like they, before the Cultural Revolution intervened, like they went to back to the file drawer, opened it up, pulled out the file, blew off the dust, and said, "Where were we?" You know, before fourteen years ago, and the and the Cultural Revolution. So, yes, there's a linkage there, but otherwise, I don't see any linkages between Deng's personal past and his policies. Zhang Zemin, a uh, little bit of linkage. Zhang Zemin is the only one I would say is a real intellectual, uh, you know, in terms of his schooling, and um, he approach policy in a very kind of intellectual, disciplined, uh, empirical kind of way, um, I would argue. And, you know, there may be a linkage there between his training in, Zhang, in um, Yangzhou and Shanghai uh, and the kind of leader he became. Hu Jintao, is there a connection between his youth th to the extent that we know about it? You know, he was raised by an aunt. Um, his father died when he was 14, I think. Um, we don't know a lot about, um, sorry, his mother died when he was 14. His father was always away. He was a tea merchant traveling through the lower Yangtze Valley region. And um, so there was no nuclear family. In fact, it's very interesting. Of all these five leaders, the only one who had a, you know approximation of a nuclear family experience at home was Jiang Zemin. Every one of them came from a broken home. 
you might say. Parents died. Parents were, in Xi Jinping's case, imprisoned. You know, or the people left, the kids, individuals left. I think um, Mao left home at 15. Deng Xiaoping left home at 16. (laughs) Xi Jinping, um, you know, also at 16. So I wouldn't, you know, if you're looking for connections between families and homes and teenage years and the kind of leaders these people become, you don't find them. Xi Jinping, yeah, so he was sent off to the countryside, you know, um, when he was 16 or 17 to Shanxi, spent seven years or something out there, you know, grew a deep appreciation for the difficulties of rural life. Um and you still see some elements of that in his leadership style, not the least of which is his um, uh, poverty alleviation initiative and now his common prosperity initiative. And he, you know, I think he does have, I mean, uh, he was sent down, he was in the down to the countryside youth program that Mao initiated in the Cultural Revolution. Well, Xi Jinping's case, it worked. That's exactly why Mao sent these urban youth down to the countryside. And Xi Jinping, I think, does have a significant understanding of that. Of course, that continued when he was a sub-provincial official um, subsequently. So, but anyway, long story short, I don't find a lot of connection in any of these five individuals between their pre-leadership years and then how they behave once they're in power. Yeah, there's some interesting work going on at the moment about succession and leaders uh, so in particular i'm thinking of joseph kirigian's work at american university on this exact topic i want to ask you some questions about the constraints faced by leaders especially these five in particular and you mentioned a few of them as we've been talking about the leaders one is the constraint of the party or the state um, another is the institutions that the individual is often battling against and the third is the sort of system that they are always inheriting. Even though Mao Zedong is founding the PRC, he's still inheriting the system that's come from the Republican era and the late Qing and and so on. Let's start with the party state question. Briefly, a lot of people think of China as a party state, that is a collapsing of between, there's no distinction between the Communist Party of China and the state or the government. What is your understanding of the actual distinction that exists between the two? Well, it changed. It's changed over time. It's a very good question, James. Um, it's changed over time. You know, in Marxist theory, or at least Chinese Marxist theory, it's the party that's supposed to basically set um, the line. They call it, the lu xian, or the general direction, the fang zhen, of uh, for the nation and for the party, of course. Uh, and it's left to the government to implement. Um, the line and the direction and make it into policy, the zheng si. So the Chinese distinguish between those three things, um, direction, line, and policy. And it's the latter policy that falls to the government. So the government is a administrative and a regulatory institution, in my view. If you look at this, you know, state council and, and their counterparts at the provincial level. Um, So that's one distinction, is sort of a division of labor between the two. Um, And uh, secondly, I would note that um, in the late 80s, there was an attempt to separate the two, 
um, party in government under Zhao Ziyang. When Zhao Ziyang first was premier, he initiated this. And then when he became the general secretary of the party, he continued it. Policy was known as Dang Zheng Feng Kai, to separate party and government. Um, and that was consistent with Deng Xiaoping's own uh, beliefs that the party was too interventionist into the economy and into elements of social life and behavior, and even intellectual life and thought. Um, so Deng gave the green light and said, you know, this is what's retarded, amongst the other things, that has retarded China's development during the Maoist period was an excessively interventionist party that controlled everything. Well, that's, you know, that's the way totalitarian political party systems function. That's why they're called totalitarian. And Deng tried to transition to an authoritarian system and relatively withdraw, repeat the key word there is relatively, withdraw the party from the economy and society and let the state um, administer uh, and let actual enterprises administer, let managers uh, you know, in an enterprise make the decisions about how much to produce and how to produce it and how to sell it. So that was a unique period uh, in the late 70s, Zhao Ziyang's uh, separation of party and government policy. Well, he and similarly, he also initiated in 88, right towards the very end of his time, a separation of party and military policy, Dan Jun Feng Kai. And that's something that Gorbachev had been doing in the Soviet Union that seemed to inspire Zhao. And the belief was that, you know, the China, the People's Liberation Army is what we call a Dangjun, a party army, a partified. It's loyal to the party. It's not loyal to the nation. It doesn't serve the state council. <laughs> it doesn't serve the state. Um, yes, it serves the nation, but at the party's behest. That's a very different model from the Turkish uh, Ottoman, you know, or the Western model. So Zhao was of the view in the late 80s that the military, too, needed to be professionalized. That meant, in his view, depoliticized, depoliticized along the Western model. Well, after June 4th, uh, not only did party army separation come to a screeching halt, but so did party government separation. So that was the end of that policy um, explicitly. Um, now, and, and so I would say since 89, up until the Xi period, there was a kind of um, uneasy uncertainty, really, about the role of the government. You know, how much leeway should the government have separate from the party? And basically, it continued to give, the party continued to give the government administrative, um, you know, distance or um, in, in order to, to administer their functional domains in whatever field it was, and didn't really interfere. Well, under Xi Jinping, that is completely reversed. The party is now back in charge of everything. Uh, and if you look at, in particular, at the reform, at the administrative institutional reforms at the National People's Congress in 2018, you see the party now reinserted into every sphere of economic, social uh, activity, and the military, to be sure, as well. So we have come full circle. Um, you know, China's flirted with separation of party and government, de jure and de facto, and but under Xi Jinping, oh no, this is all about the party. The party controls all, east, west, north, south, I think he says in his speech, the party controls all. So it's a good question. 
but the state, the government in the in the current time does not have a lot of agency and autonomy. Yeah, and that seems to be very much a trend that's accelerating, even as we speak, towards the institutions that would otherwise have constrained an individual, really sort of being co-opted to carry out the individual's will in the case of Xi Jinping. In terms of systems that they've inherited as well, I think there's uh, increasingly work on how policies that we associate with, say, the Xi Jinping era were started under Hu or even Jiang and are sort of inherited from earlier periods of, of China's contemporary past. To what extent does an inherited mandate, an inherited system constrain the leader's choices in terms of what they want to do and their vision for China? It's a very good question. Um, you know, I, I argue in the book, and I think that institutions uh, don't change and norms don't really change in, um, in perhaps any system, <laughs> but certainly in the Chinese systems. And, and again, in the first chapter of the book, I lay out the normative um, framework in which all Chinese leaders have to operate. I'm not going to, I won't take the time now to, you know, go through all that. Um, but I argue that those are constraints, uh, the, the types of Leninist institutions, you know, the way the Chinese Communist Party state is organized, um, first of all, it's not Chinese, it's Soviet. <laughs> I teach all my students on day one um, of class this week, for example, we just started our semester. You want to understand Chinese communist politics, you have to understand the Soviet Union. And I still believe that to this day, this is a um, cloned Soviet system in China. And I think uh, scholars or students of China, if you don't understand that, and you look at it as a kind of sui generis Chinese system, you're really missing a lot. So there's a whole, you know, kind of architecture, institutional architecture, organizational chart of the party and the government and the military, um, all of which, frankly, is taken from the Soviet Union and has been tinkered with a little bit over the years by China. But this is still, in essence, in my view, a profoundly uh, institutionally Soviet system. So, you know, that constrains leaders. Uh, they have to operate within the institutions of the system. Um, and normatively, institutions produce norms, too. And there's a long discussion of that in the first chapter. So generally speaking, I think all these leaders after Mao, <laughs> Mao didn't accept the institutions. He didn't accept a lot of the norms after 1956. And, you know, that's what characterized his last 20 years in power. What in, in the case of Xi Jinping, what I was going to say is that I think we, I, I would slightly disagree with, with your point um, about continuity amongst leaders in that system. Um, it takes a lot to change a system like that. You know, it's like a ocean liner trying to move an ocean liner, you know, a fraction of a degree in the ocean uh, in any system. Deng Xiaoping did. He changed during the 1980s. He moved the ocean liner and he changed normatively the way the party related to society, to the economy, the, the norms and the institutions of, of the party institutionalization. And here I have to say, I disagree with my friend and colleague, Joseph Fusmith's recent book, which argues that there was never any institutionalization 
Well, Joe, if you, and in fact, you do argue in your first chapter that one way to define institutions is normatively. Well, if one does look at at normative behavior in Chinese communist politics post Mao, I would argue that uh, there's been a lot of of institutionalization if you define it normatively. But (laughs) where I think Joe and I would agree uh, has to do with Xi Jinping. Xi Jinping has rolled back um, reversed, undermined, abandoned, you know, pick your adjective, a number of these uh, norms that began with Deng, but continued through Jiang and Hu. Everything from the, the retirement uh, and secession norms, right? He, he's thrown those out, um, to the way the party relates to the state, to the inner, so-called inter-party democracy, uh, which they still pay lip service to. You know, I just read some recent document the CCP put out this week on, on their political system, and they still give lip service to Dangnei Minju, inter-party democracy. Well, that, that was taken quite seriously during the Hu Jintao period. Um, and Xiexiang Minju, consultative democracy. Hu Jintao and Jiang Zemin, I, if you read the book, I argue both of them were very progressive. Jiang Zemin and Hu Jintao. And the one thing that they shared in common, the most progressive element of all, was a man called Zhang Qinghong. Zhang Qinghong, I uh, give five stars to. I may be very different. I think I am different than my colleagues, other Chinese politics scholars who don't see Zhang as the great political reformer that I do. But I see him as having instituted profound, stealthy reforms. He couldn't call them political reforms. In fact, I was talking to a former uh, member of the central of, of the central party apparatus uh, not so long ago, and was told that post eighty nine they couldn't use the word Zhengzhigaige party reform or political reform. They had to use Dangjian party building. But under Jiang Zemin and Hu Jintao, there are a whole number of reforms: consultative democracy, interparty democracy, um, actual voting multiple candidates for party level positions, you know, intellectual ideological changes. You know, this was actually, if you look at the substance of, of the Zhang and the Hu periods, uh, when Zheng Qinghong was in charge, which ended in 2008, uh, when he had to retire, um, that was a very progressive period. The fourth plenum of the 13th Central Committee, read the communique from that plenum, and then the speech given by Zheng Qinghong the next day about the lessons to be learned from the Soviet collapse for China. Very progressive. Um, Xi Jinping, sorry, Xi Jinping has rolled all that back, completely undermined the Deng, Jiang, and Hu political uh, institutionalization and has made it into the kind of uh, one party, sorry, not just one party, one person, a one-person party, <laughs> you know, and um, singular leader, dictatorship, and a number of other other things. So he's really deinstitutionalized the system. There, Joe Fusmith and I think are, are probably on the same page. Um, so, so that I guess that's what I would say about that that question. So, what does Xi Jinping's deinstitutionalization mean for the future of China's leaders? If everything is now about Xi, the institutionalization is gone. It's all about him as a person. You know, he's got rid of term limits. We're, we're likely to see him around for a while. 
what does this look like for the next person post she or even for the sort of the latter half of, of Xi's reign? Well, I don't think it's good for the Chinese political system. Um, Deng is probably rolling over in his grave and, uh, you know, I don't know how Hu Jintao and Jiang Zemin and Zhang Xinghong feel about it. I suspect they're not too very happy. And there are a number of individuals inside the party um, who are not happy with the way that she has ruled and the kind of reversion to the pre-Dung era. I mean, we there are, Rod would, <laughs> in fact, Rod did write about this and he and I spoke about it. The uh, similarities between the Maoist era and the Xi Jinping era. Now, obviously there are differences too, major ones, um, but there are considerable similarities in the way that the two men are ruling. So, you know, I would argue that that is not good for the system qua system and as for the country, as a, as a country. Um, in the short run, there's no doubt Xi Jinping has strengthened the party. He came to power at a time when uh, there was a lot of atrophy in the party, uh, to use a phrase that's used in academia to study uh, authoritarian regimes. Atrophy is a, you know, a process of, of piecemeal incremental deterioration. These regimes don't implode overnight. The Soviet Union didn't implode overnight. The GDR didn't implode overnight. The atrophy over time, and then there's a trigger that finally brings these systems down. Uh, that's a very important point to remember. And, you know, after, when Xi Jinping came to power, uh, he looked around and they had finished doing their post-mortem assessment of the Soviet collapse. And sure enough, the Chinese Communist Party had a number of elements that were similar. So Xi Jinping has really, you know, it's remarkable in eight years. He's set about to kind of correct those elements of atrophy, I would say, uh, beginning with the corruption, but a lot of other other things, too. So that's, you might say, the good news from their perspective. They've re-strengthened and re-stabilized the party um, and, and kind of given it new life. You know, like plants, you have to water the plant if it's going to grow. Parties don't just continue, you know, without new water. And so in Xi Jinping's case, he's, he's done a lot of watering and he has strengthened the party in the short term. But to your question, I think he's actually weakened it in the long term. And that is not only dangerous for the party, but for the country, because now we don't have these institutionalized procedures in place. Um, my guess is, though, uh, James, if she were to have a black swan event or a health event or leave power tomorrow for some reason, the system would snap back to the dungest, jongest, who, whoest types of institutionalized uh, norms and procedures that we've known for the last 30 years prior to the Xi Jinping period. Kind of like it snapped back under Deng once Mao died, right? After 20 years of deinstitutionalization under Mao, sure enough. So, you know, these, these procedures and the institutions are there. The political culture is there. I think now the expectations on the part of the, of the populace are there. So, you know, if Xi Jinping were to leave power, um, sooner rather than later, my guess is that we'd see a reversion to the kinds of more progressive um, uh, modes of rule that we saw presently. But the longer he stays in power, the more he's stressing the system, is my view. I think he, you know, it doesn't mean it's going to collapse tomorrow, but he's stressing it. Um, and the, the repression is, you know, another subject, but it's indicative of insecurity, not security. 
So we can talk about that if you like. But um, I think you're, you're, uh, in the short term, we can say, yes, under Xi Jinping, the party is in stronger position, but I think he's endangering it in the medium and long term. Um, I have a, a final question about um, the book's place in public debates about China. Um, so as you mentioned at the beginning, the, the book is very much aimed at a, a public, non-scholarly audience. And it's not to say that scholarly audiences are significantly different from public audiences, but there are ways to, to craft a book to, to suit one over the other. Arguably, public information on China is more important now than it has been you know, almost ever. You know, China is constantly in public debates, uh, in political discussions, it's used as a bogeyman a lot, uh, especially in the United States. What do you hope someone who is new to China will take away from your book if this is their first introduction to the country? Oh, goodness. Uh, <laughs> well, I guess I would hope that they read more than just my book about the country. It's a big, complicated place. And um, you can do no worse than reading the writings of Roderick McFarquhar, Ezra Vogel, Elizabeth Perry, Bill Kirby, and other great Harvard um, sinologists over time, Ian Johnston, Marty Martin King White, who used to be my professor and colleague. No, I mean, the China, I'm, uh, you know, I hate to say it, Harvard doesn't have a monopoly on, on good sinology. It's spread across the country and across the world. And so the point I'm simply trying to make is that uh, you, one book is not going to answer all questions. But I did try and write, you know, a, a book that covers 70 years of, of time, uh, in addition to five main leaders. And by the way, inside of each of these chapters, I discuss many, many other leaders, Liu Xiaoqi, Peng Dehuai, Hua Rofeng, Hu Yaobang, Zhao Ziyang, and many, many others. Um, you know, so I guess, um, as I said at the beginning of our conversation, you know, I'd hope that this is kind of an uh, overview with considerable depth, but not too much depth. This was a constant challenge for me in writing the book, was how much detail and how much depth to give. I didn't want to write a McFarquhar kind of book, to be honest with you, with a gazillion footnotes and all kinds of uh, really excruciating detail, um, which is an admirable, admirable uh, about Rod's scholarship, as I said earlier. But it doesn't lend itself to public readership very well, right? It's great for sinologists, political scientists, historians, but you know, pu you know, public readership eyes glaze over at that level of detail. So that was a real challenge um, in writing this book. I don't know if I've met that mark. I'm sure I'm going to be criticized for, you know, being you know, lacking in detail um, in certain places by my colleagues. You know, what about this? What about that? Um, they may certainly take um, issue with my own interpretations. Mind you, this is my, the whole book is my own interpretation of these five leaders. There's no uh, Bible uh, on them. So, you know, it, that was a struggle. Um, but I, for the public and for students for whom this book was really written, I must say, not necessarily for sinologists, although I do hope that sinologists um, learn uh, from it, not so much in the empirics, um, which are, you know, not necessarily new, but the framing and the explanation, the way I approach the topic. I hope they take away, readers take away a sense of the capriciousness, the brutality, and the repressiveness of the Chinese political system. Um, 
over time. That those are continuities. You're looking for continuities over over seven decades. Capricious, brutal, repressive. Um, it's just a question of less or more so in each of those three adjectival categories. Uh, but this is really it's it's a regime and a system that has visited enormous um, hardship, to put it mildly, enormous repression of human rights on, on its own population. Um, but then, lastly, you know, the, the continuity, I guess, across the, the five leaders in the seven decades, um, indeed stretching all the way back to late Qing dynasty, um, is the so-called search for wealth and power that the great Harvard sinologist Benjamin Schwartz first wrote about in his um, biography of Yen Fu, which I think all students should begin China studies by rereading. Uh, so, you know, this has been a century-long, more than century-long quest, mission to what they now call China's great rejuvenation, you know, to attain wealth and power, to rejuvenate, to uh, regain China's not just wealth and power in the world, but dignity and respect as well. And we're seeing that, uh, <laughs> you know, recently um, in not so flattering ways with so-called wolf warrior public diplomacy, right? China's demanding respect and is becoming, now that it's got wealth and it's got power, it thinks it can now start dictating uh, and lecturing and hectoring, you know, and, uh, and conditioning others. You know, what I see actually is very interesting subject for a different discussion, but what China's trying to do in foreign affairs today and including to the United States is to condition it it's using the same tactics that the party has used towards different groups internally in China over the last seven decades. Um, preemptive uh, methods and tactics, censorship, self-censorship, really. That's the, that's the whole point of censorship. You want people to self-censor. <laughs> preemptive behavior. Anyway, this is a subject for a different discussion, but um, the point is that there's continuity over these five leaders, and I would say even even longer back, nationalist period as well. Although obviously they, the nationalists never fully, except for 27 to 37, never really had a chance to get that um, regime and republic on its feet. But this is a long-standing continuity. And then, lastly, I suppose in terms of takeaways, leaders matter. They have agency. They have personality in all systems, you know, so it does matter who's at the top. Um, but they are constrained um, by institutions and by norms and by culture. So, you know, uh, Hu Jintao is different than Xi Jinping. Xi Jinping's different than Deng Xiaoping. Deng Xiaoping's different from Mao Zedong. Mao Zedong's different from Jiang Zemin. Uh, but each of them did put their own stamp, you know, on their society. Um, so I think, you know, we have to understand that uh, they actually did have an impact. And with the passage of time, some of them may look better or worse. I think Hu Jintao may actually start looking better. I, in the book, give Jiang Zemin actually quite high marks. I think his 13 years in power accomplished a lot. Um, Deng Xiaoping, of course, I give high marks. Mao Zedong, I give extremely low marks to. But if you ask Chinese today, what about Chairman Mao? They give him very high marks. They continue to think of him as the father of the republic, you know, the father of the revolution, you know, all kinds of things. 
you know, they just seem to either not know or ignore all the hell that he unleashed on the society and Roderick McFarquhar documented so well. So leaders matter, but institutions matter more. I will leave it at that. I think that's an excellent takeaway to seek of listeners of our podcast. Well, Professor David Schambert, thank you so much for being with us here today on the Harvard on China podcast. Uh, great pleasure. Thank you very much for your good questions. Thank you for listening to the Harvard on China podcast at the Fairbank Center for Chinese Studies. You can listen to more interviews like this one or recordings from our public events on SoundCloud, iTunes, Spotify, or other podcast providers. Our thanks to Connor Giersch for providing research assistance for this episode and to our podcast editor, Mike Pascarella. 